Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world, and welcome to the fourth Black Hat webcast, Trust Doesn't Scale, Practical Hijacking on the World's Largest Network, brought to you by Core Security Technology, Black Hat, and United Business Media, LLC. I'm Steve Paul, and I'm your announcer today. We have just a few announcements before we begin. This webcast is designed to be interactive between you and our presenters. Later in the program, we'll ask for your feedback. And speaking of participation, you can also participate in the Q&A session by asking questions at any time during the presentation. Just type your question into the Ask a Question text area below the media player, then click the Submit button. We will answer as many questions as time permits after the presentation. You may enlarge the slide window at any time by clicking on the Enlarge Slide button located below the presentation window. Slides will advance automatically throughout the event. You can also download a copy of the presentation by clicking on the Download Slide button below the presentation window. And at this time, we recommend you disable your pop-up blockers. If you're experiencing any technical problems, please visit our webcast help guide by clicking on the help link below the video window. You can contact our technical support helpline, which is also located in the webcast help guide. And now on to the presentation. Trust doesn't scale. Practical hijacking on the world's largest network. Moderating today is Jeff Moss, founder of Black Hat. All right. Uh, good afternoon or uh, good evening, everybody. In my case, it's a very early good morning. I'm still in Tokyo following our Black Hat Japan event. So if I sound sleepy, it's, uh, it's not because of this content. I've actually been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. So uh, to remind everybody, uh, Black Hat has just completed its uh, Japan event, and all the content and presentations are available online for free at blackhat.com, and soon we'll have the audio in both Japanese and in English uh, available as well. And now, before I introduce all the speakers and kick off this webinar, I just have a couple of housekeeping announcements for everyone. First is that the call for papers for the Black Hat uh, Washington, D.C. conference and the Black Hat Europe uh, conference both open this November. So November 1, we're starting to accept call for papers. So if you get inspired by any of these uh, submissions uh, presentations today or you've got something up your sleeve you want to show to our audience, please uh, start thinking about submitting for an upcoming conference. And uh, go to cfp.blackhat.com, HTTPS, and uh, register there. And then you also get to help uh, review other submissions. All right. I have some more announcements later, but let's get into this thing. I want to uh, start off by introducing Ariel Fudoransky, the co-founder of Core Security and also the sponsor of this event. And uh, Ariel is going to be speaking briefly about uh, viral infections in Cisco IOS. And uh, from there, we're going to move it into uh, some problems with uh, BGP routing. So with that, I'd like to introduce Ariel. Hi, everybody. I'm Maria Futransky. I'm the director of research for CORE. And, um, yes, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about uh, some of the implications of the results related to the possibility of infecting uh, Cisco IOS uh, that I did on last uh, Black Hat uh, Vegas. So, uh, <clears throat> basically, we are going to work with uh, this scenario in mind uh, for, for the next few slides. The idea here is uh, to explore what will be the implications of the uh, existence of a zero-day attack for, um, for iOS. 
Um, um, the question here that we want to answer is where uh, we can expect a worm to appear. And uh, in that case, uh, whether it's going to be hard to work on the disinfection. Um, we are not, uh, our question here is not where there is a vulnerability because we know for sure for, for the last time that this is possible to appear, um, to discover vulnerabilities in, in, in different, um, uh, in different platforms that are not the usual platforms that, uh, we are working with, uh, developing security exploits, uh, usually, but, uh, uh, whether, uh, the impact of that could affect our business, um, and now, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're talking uh, you're talking iOS uh, 12.3, 12.4, iOS uh, XR. You're talking uh, a worm, maybe a scriptable worm, maybe a possibility for any one of these Cisco iOS platforms. That's uh, that's correct. I'm I'm speaking about that. Um, hmm. I'd like to go to slide uh, number 23. Um, well, um, by analyzing the, the possibility of uh, the existence of this worm, uh, half of the problem that has to be solved, the technical problem, is uh, the actual reliability, um, the fact that um, the Cisco IOS is implemented as a single monolithic uh, component uh, which not expose API, uh, and that there are different versions around makes it harder to uh, create an exploit that uh, could uh, leverage the control of the system because it would know easy where uh, uh, where the different functions uh, are available to uh, to take control of the system. Um, one one exploit could be hard coded for a particular version, but uh, then it won't have the uh, robustness that is needed in order to. Uh, to create this uh, worm. Uh, for for this first question, uh, we have a solution that is the one that we developed for uh, for our previous presentation, and uh, basically is to create a sort of static analyzer that's going to um, um, explore all the uh, iOS memory, looking for the relationship between different call blocks and uh, using this information and information related to different constants uses, uh, uses that these code blocks. It will uh, be able to identify functions and uh, basically create its own API for for the iOS uh, based on this information. Um, that was done for, but it in order to resolve uh, uh, to create a lightweight version of the analyzer. Uh, this lightweight version is just uh, close to three memory sweeps of the iOS uh, uh, kernel. And um, it's, uh, we, we've been able to fit uh, the code for, for, for the analyzer in really small um, uh, payload for, for an exploit, which is uh, listed on the slide, uh, around one or one and a half kilobytes of code, which is uh, uh, something that could be fit um, within within the exploit. Um, 
this this means that uh, um, an exploit robust enough to exploit different versions of the iOS could be written, and uh, also that uh, the exploitation could um, could could be made uh, really 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 fast within the the execution. Uh, scope of a couple of timers that will limit uh, the possibility of running these exploits. Uh, next slide, please. The other half of the problem is the fact that uh, for for a worm or an exploit to to stay uh, within within the system, uh, it will need to, to support the possibility of um, infecting an ongoing upgrade of the system. And uh, for a pre the previous perception of that task was that it was a really complex task. It at least requires the compression of, um, of the iOS kernel and um, the manipulation and analysis of, of that um, of that image, so we saw that uh, up to that point that uh, doing this was uh, impossible in uh, during during the upgrade and without uh, uh, an, an admin uh, noticing this uh, this change. But uh, um, we changed the the um, the way to do this by basically um, producing uh, a process that could infect the image in the compressed form. Uh, what this does is uh, to um, modify the SF to basically wait until the compression was done and then Well, this is uh, Steve Paul, uh, just our, our announcer here, and it looks like we're having some technical difficulties with uh, with Ariel's uh, phone line. Uh, Ariel, if you uh, if you can hear us, perhaps maybe you could try to dial in again, and we'll go on to the next uh, presentation shortly. So um, hopefully you will uh, you'll call back in, and we'll uh, we'll bring Ariel back in after um, uh, after our next presentation. So uh, for that matter, why don't we just um, start off with um, with Tony Capella? And yeah, why don't. Why don't we uh, have Tony do his talk, and then uh, we can have Ariel pick up from where he was. And then what we'll do is uh, we'll have the other presenters uh, speak, and then we'll move into question and answer. And uh, just like I did with Ariel, I'll jump in and uh, ask any questions if I think something might need to be clarified. But other than that, I won't try to uh, distract from the, the main presentation. So... This last DEF CON 16 and in an unscheduled last-minute presentation, 
Anton uh, Capella and his co-presenter Alexander Filsoff did a presentation on BGP hijacking with a very unusual uh, proof of concept hack. Uh, what they wanted to do is intercept all the uh, traffic coming to and leaving the DEF CON network at the hotel, uh, route it through their routers, and then send it back on their original destination, man in the middle in the whole DEF CON network. And they were curious if anybody would notice and uh, what the impact would be on the traffic load. And we said, great, give it a try. Uh, we're not going to say anything. We're not going to object. And let us know how it works out. So uh, the results are it worked. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody noticed, really. Uh, and it was nearly invisible to all the attendees. And it was, uh, it was quite a success. And it was funny because since it was a last-minute talk, it wasn't really widely covered in the press. And then it seemed to sort of grow and grow by word of mouth until it turned into this kind of a big deal. Um, and so they were demonstrating a, a trust issue with the BGP. And it, it really sort of highlighted a lot of major issues tied to the way we trust uh, the core protocols that you know power the Internet. Dan Kaminsky talked about trust problems, uh, you know, people tr putting too much undue trust in the DNS protocol. And uh, I think we're seeing almost a replay of that where we have protocols available to us such as SSL that can help mitigate some of these, but I think less than 2% of the Internet's traffic, uh, web traffic, is carried over SSL. And then um, uh, to talk about some of these concerns, we also have Max Kelly, the Facebook CSO, uh, to talk about how these issues impact Facebook, as well as uh, David Mortman uh, from Echelon One that's going to talk about the larger picture. So with that, I'd like to hand it off to uh, Anton to tell us the story of the, his and his uh, co-presenter's PG... Uh, he's not co-presenting today, but co-presenter at uh, DEF CON, uh, Alexander's uh, BGP hack. Yes. Well, thanks, Jeff. Um Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty accurate and erudite introduction. Thank you. And uh, yeah, Alex unfortunately cannot make it. He could not come to Nanog. Uh, could not make it to Aaron. He's got other commitments right now in New York. Um, not really, not really any to follow up from this though. All good ones. So um, the uh, <clears throat> the uh, the things you said leading up to this are certainly um, to be taken to heart. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of how we approach. Uh, these types of systems, especially at scale, and, and how we how we uh, or what we imply in them, is something that is easy to not think about. It's something that's very simple to gloss over and uh, worry about after the fact. And this is just, to me, it seems run you know, par, par for the course uh, in internet engineering. Um, you mentioned earlier, uh, Kaminsky mentioning his his uh, lamenting rather his. Uh, is uh, a view that uh, people perhaps place too much trust in the uh, the roots or DNS in general, and I would tend to agree. Uh, interestingly, here at Nanog, we saw in the research and uh, development track yesterday uh, several presenters floating actual working code for DNS sec implementations uh, and other sorts of side root discussions. So this is actually finally happening, uh, and I, I can't say it's all because of of obvious vulnerabilities and, and, and lack of uh, lack of randomness in terms of uh, DNS transaction IDs or what have you or, or the physical transport, but I think it's more to do with something we should have always done and things are pushing us along finally to do it. Um, again, the title of the talk is 
that trust doesn't scale. Uh, and, and I don't mean to say that, um, you know, flatly. I kind of say that in a tongue-in-cheek and a bit more of a pithy delivery. Uh, I mean this to say that trust doesn't scale yet. And when we want it to scale, it somewhat, somehow it seems to cost a lot. Um, so uh, to kind of kick this discussion off, I want to say that, um, first of all, the, the discussion that we had at DEF CON really didn't um, have enough time to give all the details justice. And I couldn't say certain things and work with Alex about, you know, the shape of this, how, how it really works, how this stuff really, or why it really works at, uh, in the Internet at large. We assumed that there was some knowledge of BGP, some knowledge of interconnection, and, and how it works in the audience. Um, but I guess because, you know, we have a lot of interest in how that all works, uh, we put this call together to, I think, go into a bit more detail. So I want to start off by saying uh, that it, largely this this type of vulnerability, this type of uh, abuse, if you will, of, uh, of, first of all, trust between networks and also abuse of a certain feature of the protocol are actually the, the reason that this interception was possible at DEF CON or would be possible for any other network. Uh, it's the, the meta-level problem is that this is an emergent vulnerability. You, you don't get this vulnerability in a collection of one network. You, you don't really get this vulnerability in a collection of a handful of networks. This type of vulnerability really only becomes relevant in, in a collection of thousands of networks. Uh, and, and by saying it's emergent, I mean that it takes more than one network to actually pull this attack off. That might not be obvious, um, from any of the, the press or any of the discussion, even on the on the very detailed wired uh, follow-up to the first posting that they did. Uh, so, so let's let's kick this off from that point of view that we're not talking about um, any particular failing in the protocol, like like Kaminsky's found in DNS. We're not talking about any particular vendor's implementation or problem in implementation. We're talking about you know something that happens because we're actually using it at all. Uh, so what, what I'd like to start with um, in this discussion is that um, some consideration is due uh, for people who have been here before me and had been looking at similar problems to what Alex and I uh, found and perturbed. Uh, so, so some of the notable prior work is, uh, is, of, is of, of definite mention. Um, and uh, I guess the, uh, the most notable uh, one of those works was a report that came out last year uh, in July of 07 from uh, NIST, uh, which covered a large amount of ground. It was very, it was very much a general paper, uh, but essentially said that the, the facilities are there. We're not going to claim or, or even pretend to know how they could be utilized to facilitate some sort of interception potential, uh, or to rather actualize the potential. But it does, it, it does uh, do, it does have a it, it, It's possible, is all it could really say. Um, Another very well-known person in the research community uh, from Cornell, uh, Paul Francis, uh, uh, had a paper among many uh, which uh, talks about another twist on, on interdomain hijacking where they uh, built, if you will, in a, in a, in a, in a research and educational networking uh, backbone, uh, a, a, something that would essentially approximate a co-opted tier two network, which means that you know, if, if some network had several hundred neighbors or to several thousand neighbors, but not quite as big as the really big networks, not quite as big as the Vario, NTTs, Sprints, Cogents of the world, but something approximating that size, what could you do? And their other goal 
in the paper was to not use what we used, what Alex and I used here to kick the traffic into our network, which was a sub-prefix hijack. They did not use that. Instead, they used, they didn't even announce a more specific route. They simply uh, were able to attract traffic by announcing the same route and winning through um, existing BGP decision uh, decision uh, metrics, uh, decision, decision trees, if you will. And so one of the trees, uh, one of the checks that BGP uses to determine which route wins and eventually gets promoted to active forwarding in the router is uh, how far away it is from your network. And so that was their method in, in a nutshell. Uh, not necessarily like what Alex and I did, which was to say, um, uh, you know, win through sub-prefix, but then get the traffic back and no co-option at a large scale. Uh, the most uh, recent paper to date um, which got a lot of press and a lot of attention within the research community, and specifically the secure interdomain routing community, the SIDR, or CIDR, not to be confused with CIDR, um, was a paper uh, essentially assessing the potential for attack using what people consider to be BGP traffic engineering uh, uh, primitives, which is kind of a combination of things where if you could find that their, their, their premise was if you could find or if you had a particularly well-situated network, perhaps a, a direct adjacency to the target you cared about or a network that was their direct upstream or a peer of an upstream, what was the potential for inception in those circumstances? And they did an excellent and very thorough um, assessment of that. And in almost all cases, it was, yes, you can, and uh, you couldn't stop it. Uh, so... This considered, and the previous um, paper is really not not approaching the level and the scale that I think we've hit here. Let's start talking about what's new in our approach. First of all, and I, I, can, I can't mention this enough, and I wish the, Jeff, I, I really wish the wire reporter would have given us more time, but again, I just got to talk through how they are. Um, we, everybody overrepresented in the press uh, the sub-prefix hijacking portion, the, the, oh my gosh, you've stolen that block. Well, we did that, right? But um, that wasn't the new part. That's part of it. That's the first, you know, 0.1% of it. But the part that's new here is that, unlike the previous papers, unlike the previous research, we've taken what would be a theory uh, exercise and said that, in fact, any edge network has the potential, given the right circumstances, to, to facilitate this kind of interception, which, which all the previous research had suggested was was not the case. It was affirming that somebody in a high enough level, high enough tier, high enough connectedness state could do it, but we, we showed a way to do it that, that, that didn't require any of those things. And that's what's novel. And, and the reason this works, why this attack works, why this uh, man in the middle and can happen, is, is all, the, all about why uh, BGP can help us create the feasible return path. And that's, that was what no one could get right in the previous papers or nobody directly tried to solve. Um, the other portion that was just demonstrated at DEF CON, which we'll talk about towards the end, which I, I wouldn't consider fully novel, I consider it just a nice come-along, is that um, if someone were to do things in the past, like rewrite TTL, well, what can you do then? And, and as we showed, it's, 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 it's very useful for obscuring uh, the entirety of the path uh, that the package is now taking. So... Uh, again, to, to intercept, to facilitate this type of um, attack, you can't just take the traffic in like we saw with YouTube and like Facebook might have seen. Um, we we have to get it back to the actual target. Now, 
you know, let's talk for a moment about the scale of that. Um, on the face of it, that sounds like no big deal. We'll just bring the traffic to us and get it back. Well, if it's a website that's got predominantly an outbound heavy traffic mix, like a content provider, maybe this won't be a big challenge for the attacker. However, if it is a different type of website, let's say something like uh, Carbonite or Mosey, which are online backup systems that allow users to synchronize documents and files across the net, again with encryption, but I mean the state is still trafficking the network. Um, and these, these sites are now a very, very, very much an example of heavy inbound traffic. Uh, these could be interesting targets, but the attacker would have to almost in a way pre-estimate how much they would expect to see before trying to venture out and do this attack. They may very well swamp their own ingress links, um, or, if, or if they had a very narrow interface, they could denial service themselves right off the net, and things would return to normal. Um, they disappeared. Um, but in any, in any event, this, this feasible path has to exist. You have to, the attacker has to consider all these things and, and pulling it off. And so the, some arguments that I did here, that I did want to mention, I, think, I, I did think were valid, were that, indeed, you could not simply or easily steer the inbound that was perhaps the 20 gigabits rushing to a large cable company to your network arbitrarily, um, you have to somehow look at that initially and say, can I take this on or can I not? This might actually serve to restrict the diameter of this attack. <clears throat> so, uh, again, the, the feasible path that we want to create is, is only something we can create in BGP um, with the metrics and, and with, the, with the abilities and logic that is implemented within the protocol. Uh, we exploit a property in this creation called uh, a, a loop-free topology property, or, or rather the BGP uh, design principles were based around a directed acyclic graph. I'll refer to that as a DAG. And, and essentially, um, so the audience can, can benefit, uh, the, 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 the directed acyclic graph is built in memory of each, in each router for each prefix, each prefix being a range of IP addresses that... Um, that somebody else on the Internet has announced that says, I can reach these addresses. I have been assigned this range, and, and please route that traffic towards me. Uh, so, so routers try to ensure that any announcement uh, from any other router um, does not contain something that would be seen as a loop. And, uh, again, if we enforce the DAG property per prefix, uh, we can exploit that property uh, to create our path back. So um, how do we set this up? How does the attacker actually do it? Um, first of all, I pick a target. Um, and so from the attacker's point of view, they would perhaps um, uh, plan, plan a path from their point of view towards that target to discover, to just look at what the actual existing in-place forwarding state might be. And when I say forwarding state, I mean to say, what is the router's um, data plane? Uh, the, the part that actually switches, the logic that actually looks at the destination IP address, decides what of many, what of several possible output interfaces to pass the packet to. And, and that plane, that forwarding path from the attacker to the attackee, to the, to the target network, needs to be maintained for, for us to not cause our outage. And when we did this for DEF CON, we, we of course, um, trivially, this is, this is accomplished through traceroute and simple tools. Um, you can look at your router on the edge of your network as well and say, okay, I see these autonomous system numbers in the path from my router to the target's ISP or their next upstream ISP. So we do that. It takes up all of five minutes. Um, uh, then when we go to initiate the hijacked route or actually send out the hijacked route, 
um, we we take those ISPs that we are already noting ourselves to have forwarded through or have transited through and apply their AS numbers, their autonomous system numbers, um, to the prepend of the AS path. That is to say, we we tell our router to include not only our ISN in the announcement, but the ASNs of the ISPs that we're currently seeing as our path to that target. After that's done, uh, we then simply prepare a what's called a hairpin or a U-turn route in our in our router. That's the step number four. We want to say the traffic that now gets to us, which would have been for that customer, needs to get back out there. And what we do is we install a static route towards the the, the provider that we already see us forwarding to. But we, the reason we put the static route there is that we want it to stick. Um, and then after we're done, we you know. We, we left the conference room and went to the wonderful bar, which does not quite compare to the AP, Jeff, but it was good enough. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, so let's look at the graph here of what the normal forwarding state of a, of a network that's properly converged towards our victim would be. Um, now, the, the network provider numbers one through five, let's just for the sake of our discussion here, consider those to be our autonomous systems. Those are our acting ASs. And all of these numbers are, are valid AS numbers, greater than zero. So uh, what would happen is the victim network um, is announcing a certain prefix. In this case, uh, and I'm, I'm trusting that our audience can see the, the smaller font, uh, the existing prefix we're announcing is 192.168.0.0 slash 16. That's a larger aggregate uh, network announcement. And the victim network is telling their provider number five, um, hey, I have this slash 16. You can reach me. Uh, and five would then, in turn, pass it on to four and two, and then number two and number four pass it on to three, and provider number one, and eventually the attacker also hears that announcement because, again, their router has you know two connections, again, to the net, uh, and they are participating in BGP. Uh, so along comes the bad guy. The attacker, in this case, uh, says, well, you know what? There's some really important property, some really valuable something or other in the first slash 24 of that slash 16. Um, and so the attacker makes an announcement, and you'll see in the bottom left of that slide, uh, slide 8, that uh, the AS path is going to be prepended. Now, this is where our, our, our clever, uh, this is where the clever method comes into play. Uh, the attacker network announces that slash 24. So already, because of one important tenant in routing, one important fundamental rule, um, uh, the, uh, the, the routers in the entire collection of the nodes in the center of the graph and all the adjacent nodes would, would prefer that route. Again, it's the longest prefix that wins. No one's going to miss the 192.168.16 route. They're all going to contain it. However, our slash 24 will propagate. But Here's where the clever part comes in. Uh, by prepending, by including certain autonomous system numbers ahead of our own, uh, you'll note again the prepend includes four, five, and bracket V bracket. Um, the attacker's network would normally be the first ASC in the path. We're going to add three more networks on, and and the networks we're adding on are the value of provider four. There are there are going to be our return path. Again, that's how we were already forwarding because that's the shortest number of hops. That's two paths over there. It would have been three through provider three, then through two, then through five. So we maintain that path, and we said, okay, with this prepend, a provider network number four and five will hear the route from us and also hear it from three and two, because, again, they all speak to their neighbors. 
Now they don't take our route because they contain that AS path number of their own of their own. Uh, so again, when when we send this path, BGP makes the first check. Again, this is to say that does the AS path contain my own AS number? And provider four is going to ask that question of routes learned from the attacker and provider number three, and it's going to reject the route immediately upon hearing the announcement. It's not going to get even into the forwarding table to look at and debug. It's not going to be shown as some sort of suppressed route. It's going to be held momentarily and nearly immediately dropped on the floor. And that's only because it says for slash 24 of 192.168.1, the path apparently has number 4 in it, and that would cause a loop. So 4 wants to prevent loops. Again, it tries to build a directed acyclic graph per prefix. And so that one will not pass the test. It will not take it. Same is true for number 5. I will hear that route from possibly provider number two. And that slash 24 would would never enter because five says, well, well heck, uh, I, I apparently am learning this route from myself via number two, via number three in this attacker network. I don't want that to happen. That's going to cause a loop. Out it goes. Or rather, in it never comes. So this is yet one more interesting thing. Uh, a provider would not even see this going on, especially the victim and the people that are being used to transit back to them because uh, the router's normal behavior would never include the attacked route. It would never allow it to come in. Uh, the only way to, in most routers, uh, anecdotally here, to, to, to see this would be to debug uh, updates, to debug received PGP routes. Uh, and typically folks just don't do that across their backbone or across their core. Um, and so this, this facilitates uh, the interception. Now when providers number two, three, or providers number one or let's consider the other 30,000 autonomous systems to be behind those networks, uh, they will then send traffic preferentially to the 192.168.1 slash 24, which will then funnel through provider 1 to 3, come into the attacker, and then make a U-turn back out to 4, following through 5 to the victim as normal. Now, this doesn't disturb anything for the remaining slash 16 from 192.168.2 up through .255, Nothing changes. We just grabbed what we wanted. We we grabbed the uh, uh, specific you know specific portion. This could be maybe their their uh, initial launch pad. This could be kind of like how YouTube's architected things, where initial connections enter the network and then get redirected. There could be a variety of other URLs that are provided back for actual content served from literally thousands of nodes. But the the lightweight functions of telling you where to eventually go might only require a handful of machines and, and a very small number of addresses. So if the um, requests for certain URLs are coming in to ask for certain video A, they could be rewritten in this manner uh, to request instead video B, and uh, they would be directed properly to the right content with no one knowing why. Um, continuing to um, discuss the BGP attack we did at DEF CON in particular, um, I wanted to kind of cover uh, some, some questions, again, I couldn't answer at the conference or couldn't, couldn't even get good data on because it was happening right then, was just how successful was this particular hijack. And uh, it was incredibly successful by um, uh, the, uh, uh, by essentially the, the, the folks at, 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 the, at the event. Um, and so the, the original slash 22 uh, was heard um, at time zero at that epic timestamp, um, uh, to the number of 252 of them. So uh, we announced our hijacked route, and from the first moment to the last moment that something learned it, uh, 80 seconds later was the last time we were heard anything reporting. Uh, 238 of those 
originally reporting 252s were carrying the Flash 24, which tells us that we had about a 94% take rate from all the autonomous systems, all the networks that send routes to the collection system at uh, Renesis Corporation, which is a, a BGP monitoring company. And, and this is pretty good. Uh, in, their, in their knowledge and in their history, the people that spoke with us, Renesis, said that typically uh, a well-placed hijack route will get pretty far, but have, haven't seen things quite this far before. Um, now, I, I'm not a hopeless academic, but I like to play to them. Um, and I, I apologize if there are any on the call. I don't mean to berate anybody, but I, I like data as well. And uh, the next slide you'll see here is a more thorough breakdown of the uptake as the hijack route spread through the world. And uh, this is not even particularly germane to our, our, our notion of attack, but the point we wanted to make here was that because uh, Alex's router was very close, very proximate to several large backbones, that the uptake of this hijacked route was, 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 was nearly, nearly uh, immediate. Within five seconds, 30% of the world started forwarding to this destination. Um, and that's, that's, that's to take note that uh, important here. This, this, this is that, to say that uh, even a quick alerting system that wants to look for a minimum, say, half hour of, of badness or a minimum dwell time of, say, five minutes to be sure that that's not just a fat finger, that's a mistake somewhere, uh, we could still facilitate, if you will, a, a dipping of our toe in the pool and, and in, in inject these routes and take them back out in, in sub-minute, sub, you know, sometimes sub-second timescales, depending on where, in fact, the route is located. Uh, so, so again, the, the 30% of all ASs that would ever take the hijack slash 24, the cumulative uptake within five seconds, six seconds, rather, was over 30%, and that's, that's important to note. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll notice the green line. Again, this is the cumulative uptake percent, uh, the leftmost y-axis. This one continues from 6% uh, up to approximately 93% in about 35 seconds. So this is, this is again, you know, related to the, the passing of this BGP route update message amongst routers. And this says that basically after the first majority of the core hears our route, the next, say, two-thirds of the Internet, uh, uh, after that is going to, more than two-thirds, is going to hear uh, this route within the next 30 seconds. And the the only folks to taper off and answer back later than that were stragglers essentially from Asia and from Pacific Rim uh, uh, ISPs. Anything in the U.S. and Europe reported it in quite quickly. Um, so, again, uh, this stuff propagates fast. Uh, you wouldn't have to stay... Intercept. You would not have to intercept things necessarily very long to gather very, very valuable things. Um, you could be, let's say, a company uh, that operates your own network, has your own ASN, is multi-homed, and happens to have several thousand, I don't know, point-of-sale terminals or credit card machines uh, assigned to, you know, say, static DSL or static cable customers. Uh, uh, connections and uh, let's say you're a competitor and all you wanted to do was see who your customers were, see who the attacker's customers were. Well, this sounds odd at the first glance, at first blush, but traffic analysis doesn't need to show me what your payloads are to know that you're running a certain known application with certain profiles that match two kilobytes sent, three kilobytes received in a, in a perhaps a very loosely Markov chain fashion. And if I could have a, a consistent matrix of endpoints that I see you talking to every day by sampling for three or four minutes in the mornings, uh, I could build a picture for your customer base quickly that says all of these guys are using static connections on these providers. And 
maybe the provider has a Whois entry for those IP addresses. Maybe there's company names associated with someone's reverse DNS. These types of information gathering exercises are nefarious at, at, at the least, uh, and at worst, uh, competitive or uh, uh, perhaps an espionage approach uh, at, at, in the worst case. And uh, to, not, not to even consider the implications of um, someone with static uh, tunnels for various um, uh, uh, interconnections for offices or perhaps uh, government contractors who are working with a particular large uh, agency. Um, if, if you could even just expose the endpoints, uh, this opens the potential for what we've all known and thought about as, you know, again, an operation uh, you could never achieve. Uh, so I think in my recent history of going to DEF CON, a lot of folks would play down um, traffic analysis as, a, oh, you've got to be local to the network. That's not likely. Well, here we go. I can be in China and, and be local to your network effectively. Um, the other important point is that uh, we didn't see, and people at DEF CON definitely didn't notice any problems, any outages as the hijacked route was introduced. Now, this is worth some discussion as to why. Um, I want to just quickly flap back to slide number eight, and hopefully you all see that. The original state, uh, then gone to the hijacked state, tells us that as the attacker announces their route, um, given the topology, uh, topology between them and other networks, uh, that, that as the route propagates between providers and within the provider's network, uh, all of the forwarding state that had already propagated is already converged correctly to the attacker's network. The attacker's network um, then will always have that U-turn route installed. If they if they didn't make a mistake, it will, that is to say. And as every router, if you will, does an about-face with their traffic and starts to forward towards that hijacked route, implicitly everything back towards the attacker is already converged. So if you will, as the network propagates route or level by level or degree by degree, it doesn't encounter any outages. And that's an important quality of this attack. Um, some of the other traffic engineering attacks or inserting yourself uh, through through numbers of adjacencies uh, that you have through thousands of sessions didn't analyze the disruption potential. Uh, but a cursory glance at those papers, and again, I, I, I must say I haven't thoroughly analyzed them, but a cursory approach, cursory look at them says that there's a significant potential for this being noticeable for at least several minutes at a crack. Um, our technique, at least at the turn-on, at the ramp-up, doesn't have that aspect, doesn't have that attribute. Um, so uh, you, you definitely do, however, um, during the release, during the let go of letting go of this attack prefix, uh, cause cause momentary outages. Um, so back to our initial point, say you wanted to look at a, sor- a short amount of um, uh, traffic momentarily um, by announcing them withdrawing their route. Uh, it might not be better. It might not be wise to actually uh, stop announcing the route. It might be wiser to simply keep announcing the route, but supply one more update. And that next update might be invalid next hop. Now, we don't, I don't want to get into the details of BGP too deeply, but the idea is that there's a lot of conditions that must be true for a network uh, router to install a route. And one of the conditions that's true normally is that when the attacker's network announces a route to provider three or four in our graph earlier, uh, the router three or four will do one other check, and that is to verify that the indicated next hop, that is to, that is to say that what the IP address that we wish to have them 
forward that slash 24 towards is, in fact, reachable and valid. And if I want to not cause a disruption, I could, in theory, uh, keep the same route announced and uh, just change the next top <clears throat> to be something more convenient. Let's say I could have the next top swung towards provider network number two or some IP address in their space. So now I immediately have three stop forwarding traffic to me, kind of shunning that traffic back to network two, and I can at least then, by doing this degree by degree, reduce the chances that you're going to see a hit or momentary outage when I withdraw the route finally. So once traffic's been turned away from the attacker back towards the upstream providers, I can then release the route. I can say I can update or rather withdraw the route completely, disappearing off, off the Internet for that particular hijack, and have given you kind of a softer landing. So uh, this is, again, the, the, the interest of this, Jeff asked um, uh, quite uh, um, insightfully, uh, you know, what has this led to? What, is this, um, what has happened because of this attention? Uh, and it's a lot of what I had hoped to have happen did. Um, some things that um, happened were uh, renewed interest in uh, r- routing PKI and uh, secure origin BGP and secure BGP. Um, uh, the, the discussions here <clears throat> at the North American Operators uh, Group meeting and uh, that Aaron have actually been talking about this as well. It's had a very positive effect and very, very quickly even. Um, the renewed interest has finally gotten folks talking about alternate routing systems as well. Uh, one of the assumptions that I think a lot of people in the Internet world make is that um, fixed-length addressing and our current notion of interconnections are the only ways to interconnect networks and conduct networks. Um, that's not true, and there are other competing mechanisms, and some that have been around for 20 years that you know we haven't done. And this has been a re- another reason, a renewed interest in it, uh, to, re- to reanalyze or to reconsider things we thought weren't good ideas 10 or 15 years ago, and now they're coming back up again, which has been great, kind of stirring the stirring the muck, if you will. The other, uh, other implication to discuss um, that, that hasn't been so easy to answer, but it has been a good, a good conversation um, with anyone I've talked to, is just what is trust? Uh, and one of, our, uh, one of the persons I wanted to have on this call who couldn't make it as well uh, was Richard Thiem, and I think if anyone could talk about trust, it would be him. And I, I can do a small bit, and it seems that um, we can at least uh, designate a few folks that we will trust. It's easier than trying to designate that 30,000 people, 30,000 ASNs, um, could be trusted. Um, and right today, we basically are. Uh, if we had a few that we could trust, and we could assume that they're doing their work to verify uh, and, and, and to ensure that when a network claims that they can route up a certain address block that they really really should be able to or ought to be able to do so, uh, then that simplifies things for me. If I could implicitly trust some sort of a root, some sort of a trust anchor, like a regional uh, internet registry, um, ARIN or, or APNIC or APNIC or LACNIC or RIPE for these reasons, um, I, I could then simplify things. I could say that I won't accept prefixes into my network from a customer or an upstream provider that I can't trace back to a signed, signed hash or signed something that represents uh, an agreement that had to happen out of the routing system, outside the system, that is to say. Uh, if I can't do that, then I just drop the route on the floor and don't take it. Um, that would be one easy way for networks to avoid having happened, uh, what happened to the DEF CON network happened to their own. 
Uh, now, this is challenging from the point of view of the RIRs. Uh, they, they want to support things that appear really good and positive for the community. They don't want to appear to not want to support increased trust or creating new ways to trust networks. However, it's a, a non-trivial challenge to convince their uh, member organizations in each region to, to take on the cost if there's no, you know, no reward. And so the cost could be, you know, uh, disclosures, traffic analyses that, that reveal certain critical customers' behaviors that really do have a high value. And as this particular use of some BGP features, rather abuse of some features, percolates and, and moves around, I see an increasing amount of interest in doing this. Um, so once we hit critical mass, and it's hard to say where we are in that process, I think things will be looking much more positively. Now, um, I'm just going to look through the Q&A tab a little bit here. It's a good spot to kind of take a small um, uh, uh, side break here. So, so, Jeff, maybe do you want to feed us some text or um, uh, continue? Yeah, why don't, I, uh, why don't I take some questions? Uh, mm -hmm. The one that seems uh, that came up first was, uh, well, let me see. I won't name name the person who's asked questions. Uh, so, so it was the, uh, the what kind of connection do I need for BGP hijack? Uh, mm -hmm. Do you need, already need to be a legitimate tier two, tier three peer? Uh, well, so the kind of connection you need to do that is um, is. Uh, is, is nothing too special. Uh, what we did here was acting as a customer of a large carrier. Uh, the carrier we used to attract the route in with was uh, Savas. And so, so to leak this route to Savas required just a connection to their network, uh, a valid contract, peering, that kind of stuff. And uh, we simply sent a note off to their automated route filter system, uh, which, which manages the acceptance of IP addresses from, from networks like ours. And so we, we abuse that trust right there, um, but nothing stopped it. No one, no one reviews these requests. It's an automated system that helps prevent accidental hijacking. It, it helps prevent accidental redistribution. Um, and so, so it, the bar is pretty low, um, Jeff, uh, to answer that. Uh, anyone with two upstreams can conduct this attack. So as long as you have a legitimate uh, or two legitimate BGP pairs, Good to go. Well, and 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 uh, the ability to convince the upstreams and perhaps their upstreams that what you want to route is okay to route. Um, in the case of Savas, this was exceptionally simple because Savas has an automated tool for doing so. Uh, it's also important to note that there was no further coordination required or convincing, if you will, beyond the first first level, the first first uh, tier above us. The Savas backbone is essentially interconnected to everybody else. Um, and there's no inter-provider filtering to speak of to prevent that this kind of attack from happening. Now, uh, once, so, once, the, yep. once the attack occurs and, it, and you get the information you're interested in and you want to unravel it, mm -hmm. backing out is just as easy? Well, I mean, backing you, it you don't out, have to go back in. Yeah. You don't have to, do, you, do you leave more fingerprints by re-updating yourself in the... Hmm. You, you, leave, you leave, in total, more, finger, more, more detectable things, more actions happened. Um, you know, more information was distributed in state, if you will, in state land and the routers. But ultimately, uh, you could insert yourself and pull back out. And, um, and in, in the terms of Internet timescales, people wouldn't really notice the outages uh, to be significant, uh, not quite like the state outages that, um, 
happened um, uh, for for YouTube and other sites earlier this year. Well, that's a that's a perfect follow up to. Uh, we've seen a bunch of questions, which are all mm-hmm. basically who will see the loop. Um, you know, how do you detect the loop? How do I uh, how do I evaluate a provider to see if they're effectively filtering for this? Well, uh, let me go back percent. to the the graph real quick. As far as like, so I, I, did, I did see a few questions quickly that I, I didn't didn't want to ignore. Uh, one of them was effectively who still routes the original prefix. Well, interestingly, in this attack, um, uh, everyone uh, still routes the original prefix. Some simply carry ours in addition to it. Um, now, the networks that don't route the hijack prefix are the ones that we intentionally wanted to not carry it because those are the ones we wanted to maintain the original forwarding behaviors in. Um, and so in that case, in this example of the slide I have up, provider 4 and 5 only carry the actual 16, the, the, which the victim sends to them, which which they've heard updates for. It, it doesn't go away. Um, again, everybody still forwards the rest of the FP space the way that they always did. The, the nature of a sub-prefix hijack is such that the portion you do announce, which is a more specific range, a narrower range of addresses, is, is going to win the, uh, the decision process in a router. And, and on the basis, and on that specific basis alone, we would attract that traffic from, from the rest of the Internet, draining in through provider three in this graph. Um, so I hope that clears up a few of the perhaps less obvious portions of that attack. So uh, I don't know if this is the time to bring this up or not, but uh, you mentioned briefly that there's been some exploration in uh, alternative routing protocols or less popular routing protocols. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so someone was asking, uh, are there similar vulnerabilities or, or uh, structural uh, you know, trust issues with OSPF? Well, that's a good one. Uh, I actually got a similar question at a local uh Operators meeting in my own, in my own hometown, uh, Madison, from some university people. Very 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 insightful to ask. Uh, does does this apply to other protocols? Um, and the short answer is no. Uh, the long answer is is really long, and uh, and, it, and it ends up saying it's plausible, uh, but it would require a very very large amount of pre um, computation and and a large amount of access to a very locally. Uh, locally significant resources. Um, so, that, so to start this answer, though, the key difference is that um, the notion of distance, the notion of metrics in BGP, um, is that our route is sent between domains. Okay, um, within OSPF, we're assuming that we're all inside "quote unquote" a domain, and so the assumption in that model is that everything is consistent. In that domain, every router in domain, let's call it area zero, the default area in OSPF, for example, uh, everything in area zero is intended to stay very consistent. And implementers of OSPF, uh, to their credit, do everything they can to ensure that a user can't screw that up. Now, to create the kind of selective holes, the kind of paths um, that we we append to this route, and I kind of can I can weave in one answer here to a question from. A uh, gentleman who uh, wants to understand the loop better. The reason the BGP attack works is because, upon import of the route, um, one of the first checks is that your AS, like say, let's say you're now at the perspective of network number four. If you ever see an AS path with somebody else's path in between your number and then the the neighbor that you have configured, 
that looks like it's somehow leaked from your network back or come back around to you through another neighbor and tried to re-enter. So essentially the check is, upon receiving a route, do I see my own configured AS? And this is from the router's brain asking the question. And if the answer is yes, you do see your own AS, don't accept the route, drop it, don't install the route, and, uh, uh, um, you know, just, uh, just, just halt. Don't process that route. And OSPF and in other protocols, um, when a route is announced, it, it more or less floods the entire area. So, that, again, it's consistent. It can be imported and, and received by all participating participating routers in that in that domain. Within BGP, we, we allow and have specifically built features that let you not uh, take in all routes within your AS from a certain upstream provider. There's, there's definite and, and extensive features to filter things. And, again, this lets people cause problems. Um, the design goals, though, of OSPF and things like it were to alleviate and not provide those kinds of knobs. Uh, so uh, within an area zero of OSPF, um, some of the things that you might want to use to selectively black hole a path don't really have equivalence between BGP and OSPF. Um, one of the things we're using, again, in, in OSPF is a, is, a, is, a, is a notion of accumulated distance through calculating AS path. In OSPF, um, the distance is a hybrid of a vector space uh, and a uh, link state uh, availability notion. So, 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 so in brief, uh, the <clears throat> the router tries to calculate again uh, a directed acyclic graph, a non-looping tree um, in memory from a list of candidate link state advertisements. And it's kind of like a, imagine a set of uh, tinker toys or or wooden dowels and, and nodes to attach them. Uh, the router starts from its point of view, its configured router ID and its available links, and tries to recurse through this list of routes to sort them and attach them to that node that it that it runs locally. And and again, uh, this recurses degree by degree through the tree. And this builds a shortest path first tree, which has weights along all of the edges between nodes, equivalent to the the metrics that the router's appended or added on as it traverse as those announcements traverse the network. So, so the notion of link-based metric doesn't have an analogy in BGP. It's a, it's a neighbor-based metric. It's an abstract concept. And, and because we don't accumulate any information other than a metric, we would have to do things that are topology-dependent to create selective black holes or to create this kind of a forwarding, uh, forwarding shunt, if you will, from, from the attacker to the destination victim node within the network. And... This state would be stable only as long as nothing else changed in terms of weight or link availability or policy. Um, so, so again, the long answer is it depends. It might be plausible. I, I haven't thought through it. Um, this is great for someone to simulate. Um, it would be excellent to, to have a talk next year at Black Hat about, you know, just exactly why you want to authenticate all your OSPF neighbors and, uh, you know, shut down interfaces that you don't need to run the protocol. Um, or at least turn off uh, OSPF support for things that go out of your domain. Okay, let's uh, let's keep going then. Mm-hmm. So back to the, I'll call it the main monkey business. You want to effectively um, keep this attacker uh, away from prying eyes or less obvious. Keep them incognito. Uh, so we'll, the first most obvious thing we did at DEF CON uh, was to 
essentially adjust the value of all packets heading to uh, our network uh, before they actually entered an IP router. Uh, so in our case, we had a, a Linux system that was running the command you see in front of you, just a single line in IP tables, again, in pre-routing, rather inserted to the pre-routing chain, um, to say that for packets that were destined to that slash 22 prefix, and this is the misnomer, we weren't routing a 22, we were announcing only that 24 um, around uh, the IP used by DEFCON from their upstream. Uh, it says to adjust, and rather to TTL increment, with a value of 10, um, uh, the packet's uh, value. So what this effectively does is bump a low TTL, which would have normally expired in our network, uh, to expose the network. Uh, it bumps it high enough so that it now expires somewhere well downstream and well away from the attacker network. And, uh, you know, that single uh, command alone is all it takes to do it. And um, uh, this, this then essentially means that, you know, the path into us and the path back out to us arbitrarily long far away um, never is exposed to a layer three uh, or rather anywhere in the data plane uh, at all. Um, now, there are some people who have brought up some good points, uh, and we didn't address this in the talk. Uh, there are some protocols like RSVP, Reservation uh, Signaling Protocol, which riders understand that is, uh, is, is set to be flagged and, and punted to the control plane. And by, by control plane, I mean to say uh, some packets that go through a router uh, are special in some cases. And one of those flags that a router checks for a special packet of is uh, an option called router alert. And the router alert is an IP header option that says uh, this should take a loop, take a bump through the control plane on its way, way through the router. Normally, again, the CPU doesn't inspect anything of the destination packet. The, the underlying data plane guts just say, what's the destination address? Apply some policies. Okay, go. Uh, this is now the router alert would make the packet take a trip through the router's uh, control plane. Now, some folks have talked about certain protocol-level formatting vulnerabilities or exploits, and, and if someone could find, you know, a single packet exploit, kind of like the... Uh, SQL Slammer um, UDP vulnerability from years ago, the potential exists for someone to actually elicit a response somehow from every packet in line just with sending a single packet out with router alert set. So let's say someone found a single packet vulnerability that could also contain code to send a basic ICMP echo reply and just pick some address on the router's control plane. That could happen all in one packet, and then this would get exposed, even while we are adjusting the TTL. Because, again, we're not just avoiding forwarding the packet. We're just making sure the TTL value is high enough to where none of the devices that we control or downstream of us would elicit a uh, time-exceeded message. Uh, and then none of them would have decremented a counter that would go below one. Um, and I'm sure we can talk more about the vulnerabilities that could expose that kind of response uh, later on. Um, so I've gone ahead to the next slide that talks about, um, rather presents a bit more graphical uh, uh, way or analogy to what's going on with uh, the TTL rewrite. Uh, so, so let's follow the packet in from the red side <clears throat> towards the uh, towards the attacker network for that slash twenty four. Uh, the, the TTL starts out there at two fifty five, would get decremented at two fifty four, would have hit our edge at two fifty three. But after it does so, we rewrite the header to some arbitrary value, arbitrary high value, and we kick it up a notch. And so now the next value upon leaving is 254 again. 
and decrements itself back out. Uh, so, you know, arbitrarily adjusting this in flight just by adding a certain amount will make things look consistent for trace route, but again, obscure uh, the fact that the hijack is taking place and and effectively hide from simple layer three probes the, the the path things are really taking. Now, this is a bit more dense text. I'm going to wait a little longer to make sure it shows up for all the viewers. Um, what we see normally before DEFCON's prefix got hijacked from the point of view of a router in Chicago. And this trace route goes through AT&T to Savas, uh, to Pilosoft, Alex's network in New York, to NLayer, that was his path leaving the network, of course, back out towards uh, the destination, then goes from NLayer to an exchange point, which doesn't respond because uh, no one routes that IP address space. It's reserved range used only uh, for peering. Um, then into Limelight from NLayer, and then Limelight had a direct transit connection <clears throat> to Switchcom Group because uh, Switchcom is a customer of Limelight. And so this normal path, um, ATT, Pilosoft, NLayer, Limelight, Switchcom Group, then DEFCON is how things were before we started. So uh, let's step ahead and apply the TTL changes, and we then see this. Uh, before we even hijack, let's check that out. The, the original path before the hijacking, which I didn't show separately uh, until here, is that we went from AT&T to Limelight to Switchcom Group. And that makes a lot of sense. AT&T peers uh, in San Jose uh, with Limelight. And Limelight uh, is nearest AT&T uh, at that location. And, and Limelight's giving AT&T some metrics somewhere behind the scenes to say that, hey, give traffic to us for the customer Fishcom group at this particular pop. Uh, Limelight definitely appears with AT&T in other cities, but this is the one that attracted the traffic preferentially. And so once the packets get to Limelight, they then go to Switchcom Group and off to DEFCON. With the hijacked route in place, the only obvious change to the looker is that instead of AT&T to Limelight, it's AT&T to Savas. And if you were doing some sort of uh, probing or consistent checking, you would have noticed this transition, even without a BGP feed, and this would be quite obvious. However, if you were in Savas's network and a customer of Savas, uh, this would not have been obvious because the change was uh, uh, on a Savas edge, not a Savas uh, downstream. So, so if packets were normally going from AT&T to Limelight directly, uh, and now they go to Savas, that's obvious. If your packets always went through Savas or someone else through Savas, then nothing ever changed uh, for you. So, so this hijack versus original view is actually only specific to the view we're talking about from that, that customer of AT&T. A customer on any other network would have seen a slightly different topology shift equivalent to the new attraction path. But if the new attraction, uh, the new ingress path, wasn't too different from the previous, then this is even you know more 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 stealthy. Um, I want to point out one, one important jump here. Uh, the, the hops after Chicago uh, into Savas's network, then to New York, then directly to Switchcom Group in Las Vegas. Um, you might not even raise that many red flags in people's eyes who are aware of certain things like MPLS forwarding, which would construct then exceptionally long hops that might traverse 15 or 10 physical routers but not be visible as IP hops. They wouldn't decrement TTL. They, they would enter in Las Vegas and be sent over layer two VPNs of sorts, um, pre-routed, if you will, towards the right egress point right in New York or vice versa. 
So in most engineers' minds, I could speak for some of them by saying this trace route versus the previous wouldn't look exceptionally different, wouldn't stand out. It might only stand out if you knew something about the relationship between these two networks. Let's say you did know something about it and you knew that Savis um, did not have Swisscom Group or any of them, any of their customers as a customer of theirs. Uh, if you look at other BGP routing data, you could say that the AS23005 is never physically seen behind Savis. That is, that they never announced, a Swisscom Group never announced as a prefix or, at all to AS3561, which is Savis. If you could verify that, this trace route wouldn't add up and it would stand out. Um, but that kind of relationship exposure isn't part of any of the tool sets that typical users would have access to. Uh, this is why, again, the onus needs to be placed on your providers, on your upstreams, on the folks in charge of the backbone to get them to do this stuff, to get them aware of tools and to get them to use them. Um, let's go one step further and talk about uh, how we can get the uh, autonomous system number, which would be which would be a clear indication that someone has hijacked your prefix out of the past. Um, there's a particular mode in routers that lets one router send routes to other routers without placing anything about itself in the path, without placing anything about its AS number in the routes it receives and then in turn hands on. And uh, that's called a route reflector client. And if you configured, let's say, the session you had to the provider, in our case, Savas, as a reflector client, we would then send them routes from all of our other locations internally, our static redistributions, what have you, without our AS in the path, which then means... The, the, the path that we built, the, uh, the origin path, it, it can reflect anything we choose. Uh, so we could have actually re-originated the prefix as Switchcom group, as 23005, directly to Savas. And with the prepends on, could have made, look, could, could have made things look as if uh, Savas bought access or got peering routes from Limelight or from uh, NLayer uh, before hearing the route from Switchcom group essentially providing an imposter AS path that said Switchcom Group bought or peered something with uh, NLayer, and the normal forwarding path from NLayer would have been through Limelight. Uh, so, so by, you know, uh, fudging the AS path with a reflector client, the attacker can essentially have a clean path, and it would take direct access or direct action on the part of the direct neighbor, in this case, Savas, to track down why the apparent ASN from this announced route doesn't match the configured ASN. And this is even more of a subtle problem in, in routers today. Uh, the good news here is that um, Cisco has uh, what's called Enforce Next AS on by default. And Next AS is a logic check that says, hey, if neighbor 1001 is sending me routes from ASN uh, 10 and I've configured ASN 20 for that neighbor, uh, then don't accept the route. That's not correct. Uh, that's a good default to have. Unfortunately, a couple of large vendors, such as Foundry and Juniper, don't have a similar feature yet. They expect the administrator to write a filter that explicitly matches and permits uh, a certain ASN to send them routes. And, again, this is more of an administration problem. Uh, unless the provider's writing custom filters per session on top of the prefix filters they're supposed to be writing, uh, they're not going to enforce this. So... Here we have another way to not only obscure the attacker on a simple tool that we can all use, like Traceroute, but now on even from an engineering point of view, um, um, we, we can further obscure this stuff. Uh, 
this would be even more interesting to be modulated by uh, Ariel's uh, discussion of you know getting code into a router to run transparently. Uh, if we have control of this stuff, and someone even does have a rule like enforce Next.js, if we found a proper exploit that allowed execution and origination of BGP as a result of that execution, then we've just won um, without breaking more than just the next router to us or doing anything nefarious. Um, so the potentials are, are big, and this really gets back to a solution that's probably going to have to be outside the routing system. Um, uh, so I'm getting kind of the end of the presentation here and ready to turn it back to Ariel, but I just will conclude with a few points. Um, we, we see, again, that uh, through, through available mechanisms in place now, all it takes is one bad actor in the comments here, and, and we've got a good tragedy. We, we can have one... Uh, one ingress point that is trusted among its neighbors be the source of the problem, and uh, it'll be difficult to track it down without proper coordination and proper alerting without proper tools, which until recently just did not seem to be getting the attention that they deserved. Um, we also can note that uh, you can, uh, can, can again, get the, get the uh, path to almost completely uh, not reveal the attacker and, and pointing back to uh, furthering out the a cycle to repair uh, this problem because of a lack of information being shared and a lack of access to end users who could perhaps help solve the problem or, or find the uh, find the problem in the first place. Uh, this all means one thing uh, that's quite obvious: filter your damn customers. Um, a lot of edges do filter customers like Savas, but don't have any interest or any staff set up to um, <clears throat> verify what they're being told is legit. Um, you know, ultimately, what what Alex and I were able to pull off technically shouldn't be able to happen. It happened to not cause an outage and no one screamed about it, and so Savas won't get any feedback to the contrary, that they shouldn't have allowed that, that they should have changed their system. So how do we transmit that message you know, upstream before it's too late? Um, bottom line also, besides filtering, enforce Next.js, write some AS path filters. It's good to have prefix filters, but uh, the worst has yet to come in terms of uh, apparent origin. And if we don't enforce what we consider to be apparent origins, uh, we could be opening up ourselves for a whole uh, additional set of problems uh, that I haven't, you know, we can't even imagine what they might be yet. And uh, with that, I guess we could look at some further questions. Let, uh, I know uh, Max from Facebook has a question, and uh, so I was going to let him jump in here and uh, kind of give us a perspective from... Uh, uh, you know, a very large social network consumes a lot of bandwidth. Is the whole business model is very dependent on uh, the resiliency of their uh, BGP infrastructure. And so, mm-hmm. hand off to Max. Okay, thanks, Jeff. And um, Tony, thanks for this presentation. Definitely a lot more detailed than uh, than I heard about from DefCon, and it's more food for thought, which led to my ultimate question. Um, but I just had some comments that I wanted to, to make first. I think uh, earlier on you spoke about. Uh, how we had a BGP outage uh, earlier this year, and it's true. I just want to emphasize that it was, uh, it was a mistaken route that got put into the network and not anything like uh, the attack you're describing here, although it does lead me to think, as I hope it leads everyone listening to think, <coughs> um, you know, uh, an infrastructure that is uh, susceptible to mistakes uh, is also susceptible to attacks. So uh, you know, definitely this is something we all have to be thinking about. Um, my question was really like, uh, you know, in this particular instance with DEF CON, you're talking about how the attack became practical 
uh, in stealing kind of one edge network to another edge network and, and moving the traffic through. And I'm extremely interested as uh, someone whose network infrastructure is kind of a few steps up. Um, from a high-level peering perspective, do you think that the, the same level of stealth could be accomplished? And if so, uh, how do you think the person who was in the middle would deal with someone who had a huge amount of bandwidth coming to them? Um, and how do you think they could do it in a way that our monitoring systems wouldn't notice? Because off the top of my head, I think uh, some of our, our kind of timing-based monitoring systems from, from different layers outside the network would notice when uh, if someone was in the middle of our traffic just because of the few milliseconds it would add to uh, to our load times. Sure. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll <laughs> include at the end. Love to hear about that, that time. No problem. So, so the um, uh, first point you raise is that what's the likelihood of this working out when someone's situated more closely to the center? Is that is that how you're how you're looking at that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're relatively high up in the peering structure, um, there's a little bit more visibility in terms of where your routes are coming from and, and who you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. So, so we we thought through some of those questions, uh, and when, what what I what I what I what I tend to come to and think about it is. Uh, if you have a lot of direct neighbors um, and they uh, exchange deaggregates with you and then vice versa, if you're exchanging, for example, longer than 24s or what we consider to be commonly allowed prefix lengths, um, the attacker might never win because they can't wedge in a longer prefix on top of that. They might have access only to Savas or, or AT&T. And, and within, through the collection of policies, they might not be able to win traffic away from Say Comcast or another large eyeball network and and Facebook or or name name the content site if if that's the case um, and I know that to be um, prevalent um, because providers are now today offering for premium some customers to allow within within their networks to attract for traffic engineering purposes things longer than 24 uh, especially if they peer with them in multiple facilities like say a three point or a five point national backbone might. Um, so, so depending on how it plays out, network by network almost, we would have to ask that question individually. Uh, and it might mean that it's not successful for more than the most far-flung, the two to three AS hops out of that, that center cluster of sorts. Uh, it might mean that only transatlantic networks uh, would suffer the significant uh, detour. Uh, it might mean that you know, 80% of the American users wouldn't see the hijack, uh, hijack, 20% would, but perhaps flipped around. 80% would see the hijack, and 20% would internationally. Again, it's really going to have to be asked kind of a per per case. Uh, and so depending on the, the number of edges, where they occur, and the policies on top of those edges, we, we could come to an answer. Um, you know, but from a distance, it's going to be difficult to estimate, really, uh, without knowing the details. But uh, it can pursue well, more the, the traffic. Yep. Yeah, I would say that... Uh, Complexity increases at each, uh, each, I guess, tier closer to the. Uh, to the well, so, so if we could, if we could, if we could see something, let's say, uh, with um, Facebook sitting on the edge of uh, provider, provider, let's call, let's call it like a, like a cogent edge somewhere. If um, if cogent's customers um, are 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 getting a deaggregate through cogent. But then another upstream is what we would use to try to bring the route in, say, through Savas. Um, cogent customers who aren't filtering on a certain boundary might always prefer that route, no matter who or what is trying to hijack it. 
again, when we try to announce our route, of the 200 and some networks that did report the route, you know, 6% fewer reported ours. So what happened to that 6%? Were they all singly honed behind um, one of the networks using the return path? Were they, were they singly honed behind Enlayer and Savas and Limelight? And the answer probably is no. They, I can't imagine why they would buy just a single link and then use BGP to that particular set of networks. Um, so to say somehow, they somehow didn't accept our prefix on some other basis. And they were reporting to, to Savas, not Savas, reporting to um, uh, uh, Renesist in the first place. So they had someone there who gave these guys a view, BGP view from their network, and, and were smart enough to know about these things to begin with. So, so for some policy reason that we don't know, they did, some didn't take it. Um, and so that would be an excellent way, or an excellent exercise to really look at. Um, I don't think we got into that at all in talking to Renesis, but um, it would be certainly the question of the day. Why didn't they take it? And, and is the answer to that is pointing back towards a slight change in the uh, attack profile to get them to take it, or is it something that's structurally preventing it? Um, so I can't really speak to the details of who or how far any particular attack would get if we, if we can't really frame the interconnectedness. Um, and so let's say if we had you know something slightly different from Facebook where we had a CDN that was highly anycasted. I'm not sure if you guys use that concept much in your network, um, but uh, a, a network that's announced from many, many edges, um, even without a backbone, could perhaps survive this attack better, especially given longer prefix lengths being announced internally. Um, even if they don't leak out, the eyeballs on that network then don't have any choice but to use the longer route, which then the attacker couldn't get in. Um, so I, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get you the detail, um, but I think in your case, uh, if you did have a lot of edges and you were able to do you know, something, something that allows you an edge against an attacker, uh, you might have an advantage, at least temporarily. But that that's yeah, very... That follows up on my impression, which is that, um, you know, for large sites, really your only pseudo-defense is scale in that uh, either by moving a lot of traffic, moving via a lot of different routes, or having a lot of, uh, of peering, mm-hmm. you, you mitigate some portion of this attack, but you're still susceptible to some portion as well. And so, you know, in a sense right now, uh, I think really everything you can do to defend against this is reactive and that we do need to go in a proactive sense and um, start looking at other other routing possibilities and uh, doing research on ways to really build a trust-based routing system. Because mm-hmm. right now, the, there's trust everywhere, and uh, it's pure luck that keeps someone, luck or scale, that keeps someone from being susceptible to this attack on a regular basis. Right. Um, I mean, the, the ultimate solution needs to have some, some I think some, I think it needs to involve uh things outside of the routing system, and, and we're getting there. Uh, today, though, the responses have been quite good when the attacks are known, um, when there was an actual outage or whatnot. Uh, this kind of an attack, I think, needs to directly motivate more than we've done, um, and think, things like this where we can prove that you don't have to cause an outage to, to, to do something nefarious. Uh, and, and so I, I'm hoping that that's the translation to our, uh, our audience today. All right. Well, I'd like to uh, I'd like to get uh, David Martman to jump in here and give us some of his Im- uh, impressions, and if he's got a question for you, then we'll uh, go to Ariel, who will uh, conclude his uh, iOS shell code, and then we'll uh, close this uh, conference down with a couple of questions from the audience. David, uh, thanks, Jeff. Um, 
So, yeah, uh, basically, from a high level, we you know, this has been alluded to several times in the talk, I wanted to sort of bring it back around, which is, in reference, you know, both DNS, uh, for people who have seen Dan's talk in the past, and this and BGP are really the fundamental two backbones of the Internet. And if you don't control either of them, you can't trust DNS, which uh, you can't, and if you can't trust BGP, which, uh, as we've seen today, you can't we have a fundamental problem with the Internet. Now, that's not going to stop business. We're going to keep selling things. We're going to keep buying things. But what this does mean is that we need to, as sort of a mass you know, group of engineers, researchers, executive types, we need to get together and we need to figure out how to fix these problems so that four, five, ten years down the road, we actually have a workable solution. So we, as we move more and more things online we can trust them to the appropriate level. There's already been discussions of doing electronic voting online in California. I mean, this, is a, <laughs> this is a huge step beyond, you know, buying a, a book from Amazon or getting the latest Pokemon cards for my six-year-old on eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, accessing personal information like from the IRS or your medical records. We really need to ha- have some comfort level that this stuff's going to work right and that the tra- your traffic isn't being routed to New York or Berserkistan or wherever else. Um, so that's sort of my general thesis um, here. There was a couple interesting things that got brought up by TK, his Black Hat presentation, which most notably was that I think you talked about the ability to just drop certain kinds of traffic. Like you could really mess with a company if you just, just drop IPsec traffic but pass everything else through. Mm-hmm which really gets into some interesting attacks because you can not just invisibly sniff traffic, but you can really mess with a company's traffic. You can effectively, uh, there was an old HBO ad where there's a guy in the cable, who worked for the cable company up on the, the line, unplugging it in and plugging it back in and unplugging it and unplugging it on and off, and everyone would go, ooh, ah, ooh, <laughs> ah. I don't know if anyone remembers those. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I were, say, a competitor of, well, let's, let's pick on Twitter because they're always going down, <laughs> or, or someone like that, all I have to do is mess with their traffic enough that it becomes unusable. I don't need to knock them off the Internet permanently. All I need to do is make their service just bad enough that it's better to go to my service, even if it's not as good in terms of features, because it's more stable. Or, or, or influence where they're... Google ads go to, and, and who ends up paying for that? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot of starvation potential there. You're, you're, you're very acute to point that out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you can do some really devious things. In the meantime, well, what, you know, what can we do as, you know, if, we're, if you're a vendor and you're you know, trying to keep your service up, you know, there's a couple of things you can do. In the meantime, one is, you know, watch those routing tables. You know, either do it yourself or, you know, work with Renesis or work with your ISP to have that as part of your SLAs. But in the meantime, the other thing you need to do is, you know, in the past, over the years, I've, I've sort of said SSL has actually been overdeployed in part because people are getting the wrong and, you know, a false sense of security from it because they were ignoring their endpoints in favor of figuring it must be secure, it's encrypted. And in the past, I've also talked about that realistically sniffing the Internet is not realistic. However, if you can hijack an Internet connection anywhere from anywhere on the planet, you really want that SSL connection. Yeah, that's kind of important all of a sudden. Right. I mean, it's suddenly a lot more important that your connections be encrypted, whether it's SSL or SSH or IPsec. 
this is hugely important that whether you're carrying someone's health information or your source code or your internal IM messages or credit card information or anything else that you care about, whether it's business plans or who your customers are or anything between, that that data be encrypted because you can no longer trust that there's not a malicious attacker out there who doesn't, who, you know, you don't have to worry about, well, I trust that my ISP has their core secure, you know, whatever that means. Um, because you now can no longer tell where things are going. I, I would also, um, if I could, uh, Dennis, uh, add in one, um, uh, one, one point to that. If we, even if we do encrypt things and do all the right stuff, we, we need to put another bit of onus on our vendors to do the right thing in terms of responding to, to known and, and implementing fixes for known vulnerabilities, specifically in IPsec and SSH and secure protocols that we want to use to to hide that data. And I'm saying this because if, if someone even isn't decrypting the traffic between two sites, but rather just screwing with the metadata, screwing with the uh, the, the particulars during negotiations, screwing with Diffie-Hellman phases, and I've been trying to just elicit more of the, the, the key text um, through these means, this is now something we thought, you know, you couldn't broadly do. Now we can. Um, we, we could, well, actually, I should say, we always could have done this. I don't think anyone valued the routing aspect to interception until we, we made a big point of it. Um, so vendors could say, well, it wasn't likely. Well, you'd have to be on some sort of co-opted upstream ISP. Well, you don't. Um, all it has to be in case, all it has to be true here is some motivated attacker um, changes how the routing works. As long as it's true and it can be true, uh, the in-flight datagrams become ever more critical. They already were, but now you can point to something. But like for instance, all those web servers that are out there that can be downgraded to SSLv2, and everyone had ranked as like a number two vulnerability out of you know where five is the worst and one is the best. Suddenly, that vulnerability is a lot bigger. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because now I can just you know grab you know oh, I, level of encryption. Well, it sounds like the conversation has taken a turn. Sort of when that, if you saw Dan Kaminsky's talk, he just started listing page after page of the problems. If you trusted DNS, you, you could take out uh, SSL certs and other people's names because you own their mail. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, the combination past- of the two is, is just you know it gets scary. Yeah. Well, this, this, what do they say? This way be dragons? I mean, you go down this road and it's, uh, there's no bad, uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 have yet to never, I have yet to get a receipt from an online purchase or getting a quick SSL that was PGP encrypted. I mean, right. <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, I, I have no option as a consumer. It's, un, I, when I am in that position, it's unfortunate. Right. But then he, I mean, we begin to like nation states here, you know. How good is that encryption in Skype? <laughs> How do we know that your Skype, our Skype conversations aren't all being routed through China right now? Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> you don't. Well, um, Ariel, I wanted to bring this back to you uh, since you got interrupted due to technical problems. Uh, you were just talking about uh, the, the practical limits on uh, creating and injecting iOS shellcode. Yes. Uh, well, I will try to to restate. Uh, uh, quickly, my my point. Um, <clears throat> I was trying to to explore the possibility of uh, having someone deploy uh, some sort of worm or a direct attack to part of the uh, internet infrastructure by uh, leveraging some exploit on the some versions of the iOS uh, code. Um, 
part of the objections that uh, one can think of are that uh, since the, the iOS is closed, um, code, it's harder to write something robust. Uh, and since there are no many APIs ex exposed, it's, it's, it's harder to, to make something that's going to work on different versions of the iOS that could be out there on the, on the network. Uh, well, that could be quickly solved by, um, by the means of this uh, lightweight static analyzer that I described uh, earlier uh, this, uh, on, on my presentation. And um, given, given that that could be done, uh, we might expect as, as a possible threat um, uh, some worm or some sort of attack that's going to manipulate uh, how the, our routers uh, uh, in and in your uh, in-house at Core, have you had any success? Uh, you say this could be done, but uh, have you been able to do this in-house? Yes, we do. I do have uh, an implementation uh, which uh, basically uh, can subvert uh, an iOS uh, or different versions of iOS with the same exploit code and uh, given, provided a particular vulnerability, it might, might be able to change um, Different uh, functions. What, what basically what we did was to, to install um, to install a backdoor that will allow the, anyone knowing a, a special super password to 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 get to to administer the the router. But basically, uh, by doing uh, some reverse engineering of uh, of um, of the router and by modifying uh, identifying and modifying some of the functions and using static analyzer. Uh, more complex manipulation could be implemented. Hmm. Uh, and I also like to point out the fact that if we have uh, an infection on part of the network, uh, how, how could we uh, uh, remove the worm from, from these machines? Probably by uploading uh, new versions, but uh, new versions of, uh, of the iOS. But if we are uploading these versions uh, through infected nodes, that can modify the images uh, while they are uh, being uploaded, uh, then I think it's a little harder than, than we originally thought. So we will probably need physical access to every router that was infected probably at the same time. Uh, so the idea of, uh, of a general, uh, of a warm-up of this scope, uh, it's, a, it's a real nightmare. And, and how to address that problem is, could, be, could be hard. Yeah, I mean, imagine imagine if we had a network of today we have iOS boxes that are you know, running a control plane and a processor on that control plane per per device. Imagine a situation in which, and, and people, this isn't far off. People at a very large carrier that has a Death Star shaped logo are considering having regional control points or national control points where one set of logic, one set of guts, or a few sets of logic decides what gets pushed down into the forwarding planes of all these routers, kind of detaching the routing engine completely from the forwarding hardware and putting that somewhere on a shelf. Um, so now if we have, say, 3,000 routers in the backbone, that's 3,000 control planes, a lot of infection points potential. If we want to restrict that to a few points by going towards centralized control planes, we've just made them all that much more a target. Um, you know, Many of them is an interesting target, but fewer of them is even more critically a target now. Um, so in terms of changing the um, kind of the engagement or in ch in changing the, um, the the theater, that, that's that's stark. I don't think we would have seen this. And uh, some of the hints at this stuff today are 
Cisco's virtual switching fabric, uh, the VSS, and the StackWise technology. These are very, very small elementary steps in this direction, but a number of people are pushing for them. And um, you might want to suggest uh, to the end users of the world that they, they push back, that they don't promote this. Well, uh, I want to thank you and uh, Core for uh, for sponsoring this. It's turned into one of our uh, one of our best webinars, and uh, I want to thank. Uh, well, why don't we move on to the closing? Uh, I'll hand it back off to can to, uh, to that really good sounding voice, and uh, <laughs> and uh, just remind everybody that we'll be archiving this. Uh, this webinar online, and the slides will be available either through On24 or uh, through Black Hat. And uh, I just want to give everybody a chance to say uh, one last thing before we uh, push the uh, feedback URLs out. Actually, why don't we push the feedback URLs out now while we have uh, the comments from uh, one last round from all of our panelists. Um, I could uh, I could actually make my comments shorter and, and talk to, to two of the remaining questions we didn't get to address yet. Um, Great. Uh, we talked about the loop. Uh, only folks who would see the loop are the ones who don't have the configured AS. Um, the ones who do have the same AS as in the prepend wouldn't see anything. They would see just the original route. And um, the second question is uh, asking effectively from a customer perspective what sort of identifiers or or things would, it, would someone want to look for uh, in a provider to evaluate um, the vulnerability. And I'm not sure if, it's they're, if they're asking to to look at the provider to evaluate their goodness or relative position uh, to avoid this kind of an outage. Um, but I, I want to say that the answer to the question really isn't answerable in any one provider. Uh, it's, a, it's a collection of, the problem is a collection one. It's, it's, again, it's an emergent issue. Um, if any one provider leaks a bad route to the core, if you will, where things just don't get filtered for whatever reason due to scale or what have you, then that that's all it takes. Um, I think the way that you might want to find leadership, or the way you, the way you, one of the ways you might want to rank providers that you have a selection between, is in the ability for their knock to work on your behalf to counteract or to deal with these problems once they occur. And again, they they do occur and they will occur. Uh, you want to rank them in terms of does that company have someone who knows what this stuff is, someone who actually goes to the meetings I go to, that goes to the meetings Jeff puts on. Um, do they actually have a budget for this kind of stuff? Do they care? If they don't care, if they're not part of the problem uh, uh, awareness space, if they're not part of the solution for it at, at operators' meetings, um, they're not doing what they can. Uh, some companies vehemently uh, uh, don't send people to these things. They, they deny this as a valid source of information. And those are the ones maybe we would want to rate lower than ones who consider all inputs, rank them among many and uh, decide what to, to make a priority or not a priority. But just, you know, if you could find a provider who just single-handedly or, or individually uh, uh, discounts this sort of thing, um, then maybe they're the ones you want to avoid. Uh, I recommend my competitors to not pay attention. <laughs> okay, David? Um, basically, to sum it up, we... Uh there's not a lot of fixes right now, but so we got to keep working on it. So down the road, we have something uh, usable as things get uh, online, more things get online, and these things that are online become more important. Uh, Max? Did we lose Max? Oh, hi. Um, 
I think from, from my standpoint, it's, it's good to be able to think about how to possibly mitigate some of the effects by engineering the network and, uh, and being aware of the minutia of evidence that may occur if someone's trying to do this. But I think the long-term plan definitely involves uh, studying better solutions for distributing routes and uh, understanding where they're coming from. And then, uh, Ariel, you uh, opened it up, so I'll give you the honors of shutting it down. Uh, well, I will say that uh, I think that we are still seeing the the results of uh, a, a design uh, for for our infrastructure that didn't take into account the real possibility of of a real threat, but just to to support um, what will be uh, spontaneous errors. And uh, and uh, for me, that's probably uh, go back to to the science stage and uh, and uh, and rethink uh, most of this uh, again. All right, Steve. Well, um, I'd like to thank everybody here for uh, taking the time to listen to uh, our Black Hat webinar. And just a reminder, we try to do these every single month for free, and uh, we'll have one announced online, uh, editorial calendar on blackhat.com. And uh, if you're interested in any of uh, these topics, please feel free to uh, check out the website. All of our past materials from all past Black Hats are online and uh, along with audio and video as we get them prepared. Uh, we also have a Twitter feed and an RS feed. We have all the various ways of getting some information. And uh, so uh, we encourage you to try to get involved in the, the Black Hat community and uh, participate in events like this. And if you'd like to speak, I would love to have you at the CFP uh, system submission. With that, I'd like to uh, officially end my duties and pass it off to the powers that be. Great. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you all for attending today. And for more information, please visit any of the resource links that are open before you. And thanks again for attending today's Black Hat webcast. Trust doesn't scale. Practical hijacking on the world's largest network. Brought to you by Core Security Technology, Black Hat, and United Business Media, LLC. Shortly after this live presentation, you can access this presentation on demand. This webcast is copyright 2008 by United Business Media, LLC. Presentation materials are owned by or copyrighted, if that is the case, by Black Hat and United Business Media, who are solely responsible for its content, and the individual speakers are solely responsible for their content and their opinions. On behalf of our guests, Jeff Moss of Black Hat, Tony Capella of 5.9 Data, Ariel Futonsky of Core, David Mortman of Echelon One, and Max Kelly of Facebook, Thanks for your time, and have a great day.